I have a word tonight, church. I, I have a word. I, I believe it's a pastoral word. I also believe it's a prophetic word. I believe it has the power to transform things, not just in your life as an individual, but I really believe it has the power to shift something in our church corporately and to unlock potential that has been in this house but not expressed. So I'm going to preach on honor and honesty uh, again, this is a paradox. It's somewhat of a paradox that dissolves once you kind of walk it out. But there's tension between being a culture of honor and a culture of honesty. And whoa, this side of the room, there's way more people tonight. I just feel like I just got to get tugged this direction. Uh, they're going to put it on the screen. But this is a, this is a paragraph that kind of describes, you could find this on the, the website. And this is one of our core values, honor and honesty. And I'm just going to read this. And then we're going to read a couple scriptures together. It says, we have never met a mere human. We live in relationship with image bearers of God. Honor holds this truth before our eyes. Honor speaks this truth out loud. No matter the story or behavior exemplified, honor sees the beauty inherent within and acknowledges it. Jesus modeled this with Peter, gazing through the debris of his insecurity and cowardice to call forth the rock that would lead the people of God forward. We are instructed to do the same with those he's placed in our lives. Choosing honor does not equate to the denial of one another's flaws. Rather, it includes an unwavering commitment to speak the truth in love. Providing honest feedback is an act of courageous love. It says, I value the image of God in you more than you liking me right now. I'm committed to you becoming all you were created to be. Because Jesus saw and honored Peter, he rebuked him. The power of life and death is in the tongue. God created our mouths to be fountains of grace, releasing life to all who cross our path. Amen. How about we stand together? I'm going to read two scriptures for us. One is out of Malachi chapter 4, and then I'm going to jump to Ephesians chapter 3. Both are on the screen if you don't have your scriptures open or with you. Uh, that, that is okay. You can follow with me, but these are two verses uh, that I believe the Spirit of the Lord is going to bring to life in this room, in his sanctuary tonight. This is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Next, I'm going to read out of Ephesians chapter 3. Starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, and we say, do it tonight in this house, God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk about honor and honesty tonight. Rather than breaking it down really practically, I'm really going to try to bring you in. I believe the Spirit is going to usher in uh, the, the very essence of his honor and honesty. And I'm going to share what I believe is somewhat of a modern day parable that's going to invite us to wrestle with what does it look like to walk in honor as a house. And specifically, there's many aspects of division that I think you could focus on culturally or within the house of God. But I'm going to look at multi-generational honor tonight and what does it look like for generations to be woven together in a bond of honor. And if you want that to happen, say, amen, come Lord Jesus. 
So first, let's talk about honor. The essence of honor, Ephesians 5.21, it's in the context of husband and wife, but it says submit to one another in the reverence or in the fear of Christ. That's the backbone of honor. It's essentially saying honor means I will treat you as if you were Jesus, which is a good idea because Jesus does live inside of us. And he says, if you do this to the least of these, you do it unto So the essence of honor, the backbone, it's not a humanistic expression. It's actually an expression that honors Jesus and it honors the image of God that is inherent within every single human. So that is what honor means. Honor is to act towards someone as if they were Jesus. Woo, come on, that's a good word. You know, uh, I, I, I really uh, admire Bill Johnson, and uh, one of the things that I've heard, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with him, he has him and there's another senior leader in his church, they've done ministry for like decades, and Chris Vallotton, I've heard him say, in all my years of knowing Bill Johnson, I have never heard him say a bad thing about someone. That's a life of honor. That's a James 3 tame tongue, somebody Our mouth is a mouth, it's supposed to be a fountain of blessing and not of cursing. How can you praise and exalt and worship Jesus like we just did, but then speak curses or dishonoring things about people made in his image? That's such a picture of integrity. It's a tame tongue that speaks honor and only honor. Whew. High standards in here. It's not my words. These are Jesus's. So I want to talk about an honoring lifestyle versus a culture of honor. All right. So an honoring lifestyle, this is what an honoring lifestyle is. It's when someone makes a powerful decision that says this, I will treat people like I would treat Jesus no matter how they treat me. That is, you have to make an agreement. A covenant with that statement is what empowers an individual to live a lifestyle of honor. This is really good news because nothing needs to change in your circumstances for you to be empowered to live a life of honor. It is an internal decision. In the therapy world, they use language called the internal versus the external locus of control. Say that, locus of control. Woo, we're getting technical in here tonight. An internal locus of control means that the control and the power, it's in me, right? So when it comes to honor, it's, we're talking about an internal self-control where it's saying, well, no matter what you do, this is how I'm going to show up to the relationship because you don't have the power, you don't have the control, which is an external locus of control, An external locus of control says, I will treat people according to the way they treat me. Jesus blows this up in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't just love and pray for your friends, love and pray for those who hurt you. He's saying you have to live with an internal, out of self-control, which is a powerful choice. Like, think about this. When, when control, when, when power gets externalized, I will only show up in honor if you treat me good. That's powerlessness. That's the road to becoming a victim. I'm actually victimized. I am, I'm showing up bad because you're showing up bad. Woo, woo, woo. They're so mean to me, blah, blah, right? It's a path to powerlessness. A lifestyle of honor is a powerful decision that says, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to show up and treat you like you were Jesus. You're quiet because you're convicted. I know it. (laughs) We can only gauge the level of honor we walk in by how we think, speak, and act towards those who hurt, dishonor, or disagree with us. You cannot measure if you walk in a lifestyle of honor by how you show up with your friends. Because you you only find out if you're making a powerful decision when you're faced with people who don't act like friends. They disagree with you. They disrespect you. They say mean things about you. How you show up there is really the litmus test that gauges the level of honor that you're walking in. Yes, somebody? I love you. So a lifestyle of honor requires nothing from anybody except yourself. There's really only one person in the world you can control. And there's only one person in the world that the scriptures authorize you to control. It's yourself. 
This is good news. If I make a powerful decision out of self-control and I internalize the decision that says, no matter what, I'm going to treat you like Jesus, that is a powerful person. That's a person that's going to transform culture. That's a person that's going to transform. That doesn't just work here in the church, by the way. That works out there. That's who employees want to hire. That's who gets promoted. That's who has favor. People who walk like that. Joseph, Joseph, he honored no matter how people treated him. Okay. So uh, honoring lifestyle requires nothing from nobody else. But if you talk about a culture of honor, this is different. Honoring lifestyle, internal decision, me choosing to control me. I'm going to treat you like Jesus no matter what you do. But a culture of honor is actually a relational dynamic. It's something that takes place when two or more people choose together to live honoring lifestyles. This causes honor to overflow into the identity, thoughts, words, and actions of a community. Right? I can be in a relationship with someone that doesn't want to walk in honor, and I do, and the reality is we can't create a culture of honor. Because to create a culture of honor, both of us have to make a powerful decision to show up in honor. It is God's will for his house to be a house of honor. It's all through the scriptures. We don't have time to jump into all of them, but it's all through the scripture. And it requires, it is a powerful people. It is a culture that is truly powerful, not in a macho standpoint, but in the standpoint that I will show up in honor no matter what. And when I don't, I'll clean up my mess. But this is what God, this is my dream as the pastor. I want River House to be like, that is a culture where honor just seeps into the cracks of everything. I've been here for three years and I still haven't heard gossip. I've been here for years and I still haven't heard someone slandering. I've been here and there's just not this backbiting and competition. There's not this everyone striving to climb up the social ladder. There's just honor. That's what heaven's going to be like. Right, but we have to understand that between us and a culture of honor, there will always be enmity. Say enmity. Enmity. You sound so smart. Wow. Just, our IQs just bumped up. Who's used that in the last week? I'm feeling so much enmity right now. Enmity. There is enmity between us and a culture of honor. Because in the waters of any culture, there is discord, division, strife. Yeah? Anybody experienced that lately in any relational community that you find yourself in? Anybody ever experienced enmity at Thanksgiving? Oh, God bless holidays. They have a way of just attracting enmity. Right? No, there's enmity. We have to understand. Like, we, we don't just like drift into a culture of honor. Like, wow, this is a great idea. We're, we're kind of like d- picking a fight and having a topic like this. I'm picking a fight tonight with the devil. So battle's not flesh and blood, but we all know there's enmity. And there's just times that, ooh, I want to wring their neck, right? Nervous laughs. All right, we're humans in here. I like it. These are my people. So to create a culture of honor, we will have to overcome cultural enmity. So I want to speak about building a culture of honor today. And again, I want to speak about generational honor, generational unity in the context of this house, in the context of our moment in society, the world that we are living in. So I'm going to speak into generation generational disunity some. And I want to say this before we really get into it, is that this message is for you. I I don't want you sitting here being like, oh my gosh, she needs to hear this. Oh my gosh, I have been praying for him. Yes, get him, God. I don't want you sitting in your prayer language interceding for someone else (laughs) to have their eyes open and to see the light tonight internal locus of control. The only thing that you and I can control to build a culture of honor in this house is again, ourselves. So we're wasting our energy if we're, uh, you know, sling it to someone else in the spirit. (laughs) Okay, so where does enmity come from? 
between generations. It comes from sin. Like, I think sometimes we, we, we fall into this myth of thinking that like this is a new thing. Like, no, why did the Ten Commandments have to address honor father and mother? Because sin introduced enmity, all types of enmity, all types of strife, all types of division. I, I, I ran across this quote. I think, I think um, maybe particularly like the boomers in Gen X, you'll be like, yes, who is that? I need to buy his book. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties, dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. You probably think that's a baby boomer writing this. That is Socrates, 2,500 years ago. This is not a new topic. There's actually patterns throughout like history where the older generations are often fall into the temptation of criticizing younger generations and the younger generations rebel from the older generations. This is because of sin, not because of Facebook, not because of Instagram. This isn't a new thing. So it's, it's an old problem but there also there there are nuances that are new to the cultural moment today that we are living in. So there's a there's a famous anthropologist, which an anthropologist is someone that studies humanity. Her name is Margaret Mead. She she was in the 1900s, and she she gives some language that I think is helpful to help understand some of the nuances of the generational dynamic and the struggle today in in the Western world. And she uses uh, these, these three terms. It's post-figurative, which that will be up there, and then we'll talk about co-figurative, pre-figurative. So when she's writing about post-figurative, she's writing about all of human history up until the Industrial Revolution. And, and it's basically the term is that humans, society was formed, the young learned everything from the old uh, almost exclusively up until the Industrial Revolution. So parents picked spouses, parents you know, there was like, you know, 19 generations of cobblers because father passed a son who passed a son who passed a son. You know what I'm talking about? Generations of farmers, generations of cheese makers, generations because everything was passed from the old to the young. It was a post-figurative. So those that were older uh, formed and shaped the young. That was how it happened. Then on the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, when new technology was introduced that started changing the world, all of a sudden, uh, children didn't do the same things that their parents because they were going to work at the factory. And there was this whole new world where people are trying to use logic and reason to figure out things together. And so Margaret uh, uses the word that it went from a post-figurative society to a co-figurative society. So it wasn't that uh, all authority was thrown out, but there was more of a collaboration in figuring out. All of a sudden, parent, you know, children would start to process with parents about who they were going to marry and so on and so forth. You, you see the implication. She then, this is about 40, 50 years ago, started writing, uh, you could say prophetically, about uh, what was coming in the coming decades. And she started imagining what she coined would be a time of uh, prefigurative, uh, which is when techno technology would begin going at such a rapid pace that the young of society would actually begin to learn things that the old hadn't, and there would be this reverse mentoring effect where n not to destroy the old passing to the young, but all of a sudden the young would start to be actually educating and teaching the old about things. And you don't have to look really hard in our world today to see that that is happening uh, in the little things and the big things culturally. Little things like how many... Uh, how many of uh, maybe baby boomers or, or Gen X in the room, you've, you've had a younger person teach you how to use like an iPhone? Uh, or there's things, you know, like my mom, I was like, mom, you know, you can zoom in on the text. She was like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, you can take your glasses off. You can just zoom in. You can read it all. She was like, oh my gosh, I've only had an iPhone for 10 years, you know? Uh, so like the superficial examples like this, but if you look at 2020, there were a bunch of social uprisings. You may not agree or like, I don't know where you stand with like, you know, um, all the different social movements. Those were not being led by the old. They were being led by the young. Even myself, I found myself feeling dated, 
during the COVID time because I was having conversations spurred on by social media from people younger than me that were actually educating me about things that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of. Has anybody had this type of an experience? You know, and, and you may not agree with it. This isn't saying it's good, right, wrong. This is just saying this is the world we live in. You know, a lot of people are upset about um, things like why are, you know, 21-year-old NBA players shaping culture? Because we're in this prefigurative society. And, and there's a lot of things that are really messy about it, but it's more having to understand this is what's happening. So Tim Elmore, who's heard of Tim Elmore in this room? He's a, he's a, a leadership expert. He's a, he's a man of God. He works, um, he, he, his expertise, he's, he's a baby boomer. I think he's in his 60s or early 70s. And he, uh, he, he's given himself to study to understand the millennial and now the Gen Z generation. He has books like A New Diversity. He has a book on Gen Z. If you're seeking to be, I don't know, made aware of certain things and dynamics, but he's trying to speak into what is the generation gap today. And this is really, it's a simple quote that I want to share from him today. But he essentially said this, and speaking of this prefigurative society that we have entered into uh, in Western society, he said, the reality is There are modern elders and young geniuses that exist around us, and we must learn how to work together. There are modern elders and young geniuses, and we must learn how to work together. Some of you might be triggered right now, even by me sharing some of this, but I just want to encourage you to take a deep breath. If you're feeling emotion rise up in you, that's okay. That's actually good because we need it to come up so that we can... Let the Lord make two groups into one because I promise, I promise there's something beautiful for us. So uh, I think a picture that captures this modern elder, young genius that I think we'll all see and we'll relate with is who has watched the, the Jesus Revolution movie that came out earlier this year? We saw this in real time. We saw the story of the Calvary Chapel and the Jesus People movement and it took place because a modern elder and a young genius came together. You know what I'm talking about? Chuck Smith had an old dream. Lonnie Frisbee had a young vision. They came together. I still think the most remarkable part of that movie was Chuck Smith's humility to come into repentance to create space for this young hippie from San Francisco who had a vision up on the mountains in Palm Desert of seeing young people baptized at Pirate's Cove. And, and, and they worked together. And as they worked together, there was a spontaneous combustion of something that transformed the world that we live in. Who was personally affected by the Jesus People movement in this room? I know that there were some, some people that were a part of it. Uh, anyways, you see the picture. We would not know either of their names if they hadn't have come together. We wouldn't know who Chuck Smith is. We wouldn't know who Calvary Chapel is. We wouldn't know who Lonnie Frisbee is if they hadn't have come together. It was a modern elder, a young genius, the Lord, the Lord works in relationships like these. So this is, this is kind of weird, but I'm going to offer you a modern parable from Hollywood tonight. <laughs> You're like, oh, whoa, whoa, this is getting crazy. I would show it on the screen, but I can't because there uh, there's language that's inappropriate for the house of God. Um, but I've wrote it down, and I'm going to read some of it. And who has seen the movie Good Will Hunting? Uh, I, I'll just say, you may, I, I, if you go and watch it after tonight, some of you may. I just want to give like a full warning. There are, there are words that I don't think are good, and you just need to do so uh, with your own wisdom. I don't just want to be like, Pastor Jordan told me to see this, and there was an F word. So warning, all right? You can type it in Google. They have those like clean flicks, I think. I don't know. So Lord help us. So, so the, the movie Will, Good Will Hunting, if you haven't seen it, it's like Robin Williams is a guy called Sean McGuire. He plays a therapist. He's a former MIT grad that said no to the life of science and mathematics and instead gave his life to helping people. He's a therapist. And then you have this young genius, Robin Williams, Sean McGuire is the modern elder. You have this young genius, Matt Damon, who is uh, Will Hunting, and he is absolutely brilliant. He's literally a genius, uh, but he also has an orphaned heart, and his life was essentially a tug-of-war between brilliance and brokenness. Okay, so that's, that's the character play. So we have this, the whole movie set around this modern elder and this young genius. And they, 
they uh, are forming, Will Hunting is so broken that it's, it's literally causing him to lose the gift on his life. And so uh, he is put into Sean McGuire's counseling office. And they have this first conversation, which to me is a parable of the generational brokenness that we see in our world today. And I won't go into the depth of it, but essentially what happens is that the ego of this young, cocky genius triggers the ego of this modern elder, and it literally ends with him grabbing him by the neck, saying, never saying that again because the amount of dishonor and disrespect because this young genius recognized he had intelligence, he had things that this guy didn't, and he rips him apart, dishonors, disrespects, triggers him. He goes right back at him and he says, get out of my office. The pain of this young orphaned heart who's brilliant touches the pain of this man who had lost his wife and it's just, and had his insecurity and was in a broken time, and it, and it just blows up. You seen the movie? It's a parable. It's a picture, right? We're, 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 again, there's enmity. Say enmity. We are, we're joking if we think that in the path of building a culture of honor in any relationship, let's just say a two-person relationship, we will have to face the enmity. We will, we will have to face the pain, because there's brokenness, and the brokenness inside of us is like shards of glass. And you know how, like, all of a sudden when you touch that, it's like, oh. Right? So there's a parable. Thankfully, for the sake of us and good movie and tonight, there's a parable of hope, which is the second conversation. And this is what I'm going to read. So uh, it, it's about four days later. Sean McGuire, Robin Williams, takes him to a park, sits him down at a bench. He starts the conversation by saying, I thought about you. The whole night, I was up in the night. He's like, and then a thought occurred to me. I went into a deep, peaceful sleep, and I haven't thought about you since. He said, do you know what the thought was? And he said, no. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he proceeds to go in this monologue that I think is a parable of hope and has something to offer all of us tonight. So this is Sean McGuire now addressing Will Hunting. He says, so if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seen that. You're a tough kid, Will. I could ask you about war and you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. And if I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone who could level you with her eyes, felt like God put an angel on earth just for you. And you, know, you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have that love for her be there forever through anything, through cancer. You wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the term visiting hours doesn't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anything that much. I look at you and I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared kid but you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and ripped my life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't care about all of that. Because you know what? I can't learn anything from you I can't read in a book unless you want to talk about yourself, who you are. And then I'm fascinated. I'm all in. But you don't know if you want to do that, do you? You're terrified of what you might say. It's your move, Will. What's happening here? Two things. Two things of this modern parable. 
First is that Sean overcomes his own insecurity and offense. And he comes and he speaks a message that's both honoring and honest to this young genius. This is such a picture of what fathering and mothering looks like. To be a father and a mother to a generation of gifted, wounded hearts will require the art of taking pain and channeling it back in love and honor. This is how we will reparent and reform and retrain the orphaned heart of a generation. This is Jesus on the cross as he is literally taking the full vent of people's pain and brokenness and sin and he takes it and he channels it back with healing and love, forgiveness, dignity. That's what it means to be a father, a mother. It's not for the faint of heart. Hurting people hurt people. And this is a world full of suffering. And this prefigurative world and the millennial and this Gen Z generation, yes, they're bright, they're gifted. I'm part of the millennials. But there's pain. Much of the, the shift of the millennial generation, it's, it's identified by a, a pulling away, a rebellion from the brokenness of authority structures in the home, in the church, in the marketplace. So the millennial generation is powerful, but that powerful, that power in part is being fueled by a wound. So to stand as the older generation, the, the fathers and the mothers of today, you have to understand there's gonna be pain, there's enmity. Sean McGuire gives us a picture. He gives us a parable. He does it. Gets over his offense. And he loves him. And then Will, this young genius, he is faced with powerful clarity that I believe is prescriptive to much of the young generations today. He is a genius, but not all knowledge is equal. And many things in life can only be learned through experience. And those lessons can be imparted through relationship. But what Will has to choose, he can either revert back to his echo chamber, keep doing it the way he's doing it, or he can humble himself. Thankfully, uh, in, the, in the movie, we see that he does. He steps in, they build a relationship, and this relationship brings healing to both of them and purpose to both of their lives. I'm gonna leave the story there, and I'm gonna contextualize what I wanna talk about for the rest of tonight. And I want to say this, there are life-changing relationships in this room. And maybe you're not in this room, maybe you're watching on live screen, but within this community, Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee type relationships, relationships that will change your legacy and your life and your marriage and your finances and your ministry and your job and your occupation and everything about you. Like they may not be these broadcasted like a Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee, but I promise you they're just as powerful nonetheless. There is something that takes place when the hearts of the, of the parents turn and the hearts of the children turn and they come together. There's, there's, it's so much greater than what we are apart. And it's not a superficial union, it's a real thing. And I'm just gonna share about two, uh, two relationships in my life um, that, have, that have completely transformed me and I just I'm, I'm going to speak to them briefly just to just to give a a framework. Uh, the first is uh, Rick Irish. He's preached here years ago. Uh, he's been like a, he, he's a spiritual director in my life. He's been a mentor for over seven years now. Uh, Rick's in his seventies. At least I think you are, Rick. I know he's probably listening. I, he didn't, I didn't tell him I'm talking about him. So bless you, Rick. I love you. I hope you like this. Uh, we met at a camp. I was preaching at a camp like seven, seven plus years ago. And he came to me and he, he offered me uh, some encouragement. He came and he encouraged me. He was like, man, most people that speak at youth camps tell funny jokes. And he's like, you just preached about Jesus as Lord. And I was surprised they responded. And then he offered me some feedback too, actually. And uh, in Basically, we had this conversation, and then uh, we were there for like a week, both of us. He was there, him and his wife were like the camp. Uh, they were like helping with the camp. 
And we ended up getting together, and I'll never forget it. I know where we were sitting. We were looking out over the Payette Lake, and he opened his heart to me, and he shared his story with me. He'd been a pastor for decades. He had, he was kind of in a, he's been in a retired from the formal pastorate. And he vulnerably, with tears, he shared the broken parts of his story. He shared some of the most agonizing moments and then how the Spirit of the Lord stepped in and changed him. And I remember crying, sitting there saying, wow, like I want this man to help form me because there's such a depth to what he's allowed the Spirit of the Lord to do in him. And uh, we built a relationship and we've met every month for like over seven years. Uh, He lives way out in Greenleaf and sometimes we drive out there, but we usually meet in the middle. And what Rick has done to me more than anything is he's listened to me. He has listened to me for so many hours, patiently listened, asked questions, taken an interest in the inside of me. And that listening love has shaped me, it's formed me, it's edified me. He's also, he's asked questions, he's, he's brought prompts, he's given me correction, he's listened to messages, he said, you've said this, or the way you said this, it brought a pause into me, and he's offered feedback and criticism that, is, that has shaped and molded me and saved me from so many things that I wouldn't have been able to see because he could see them because he'd been around the merry-go-round around a few more times than I had. And in and, and all, like he has, he, has, he has fathered and shaped parts of my being and my identity to the point that I would say this with confidence. Every single one of you that have benefited from the grace of God on my life, you've benefited from the grace of God on Rick Irish's life. He is so grafted into my life and my story that, that I, I feel like I'm carrying a part of his legacy. Not all, his legacy is much bigger than, but I get to carry a piece of his legacy because he has poured his life into me, made himself available to me. I'm going out to his house this week and we're gonna, he's teaching me how to do some wood carving stuff. Like he's just loved me and the impact of that love, like I am his fruit, you are his fruit. He's grafted into my story and there are things that he has vulnerably shared with me, things that he's stewarded, promises he's stewarded for decades that he's told me, I'm seeing those promises fulfilled in you. There's purpose in relationship. And it's my joy. I feel like I get to carry what he's fought for and stewarded for decades. I get to carry the fruit of it in seed form and I get to sow it and give it away. He has forever changed my life. And it's looked like a bunch of times sitting at Panera Bread, laughing together, crying together, sharing my story, him sharing his story. It changes us, you guys. Another relationship in my life, uh, you, most of you know he's our executive pastor, he's Johnny Glisson. He'd probably get really uncomfortable if he knew I was going to talk about him. I don't even know if he's here because my eyes are bad. Is he? Oh, there he is. I love you, Johnny. Uh, Johnny and I met because when I was in college, this is like over 10 years ago, when I was in college, I think I was trying to be like Bill Johnson, so I'd write these little quotes on Facebook that I thought were really wise. You know what I'm talking about? Like, wow, that's revelatory. I'd get like 12 likes. And... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, one day Johnny came up to me at church and like he's just an old guy at church to me, you know. He's like, "Hey, I've been reading your Facebook. And those are like so good." And I was like, "Sweet. This old guy thinks I'm anointed." You know. <laughs> then like a couple years later, I was uh, I was interning at the church and he basically came up again. He was like, "Hey, like the way you pray is just like really powerful and I, could you teach me how to pray?" And I'm like, "Man, this guy really thinks I'm anointed, you know? And I was, I was like flattered, you know? Like all the young people in the room, how do you, you feel flattered, right? When someone older than you tells you, you're like, wow, like that's cool, you know? So we ended up building this relationship and I remember we went and we had lunch or something and again, I think Johnny told me his story, his testimony, I told him my story, my testimony and we started just building this friendship and the thing that I love about Johnny is like he's old enough he could be my dad but for the last 10 plus years, this is what I wrote, he has served, supported and corrected me relentlessly for 10 years. I feel like a large part of our relationship. I'm like the kid in the back seat. Like, are we there yet? Can we do it now? Can we do it now? It's like, you know, I don't know if it's not yet. I think it might be not yet. I'm like, okay, but can we do it now? And sometimes it's driven me crazy, but this is the thing I've learned is like he has transformed and changed me. He's calibrated. And what Johnny saved me from is a whole bunch of Ishmael. He, he, he's protected me from a life of Ishmael, doing the right thing in the wrong time. Doing the thing that God promised in your own strength instead of waiting for him to do what he promised. Because, because I needed, he's seen things that I couldn't see. 
I've also made a bunch of mistakes, and he's just kind of loved me through the process. But there's such a trust that I have for him, even though he's hurt me before. He's, he's said things that really ticked me off before. He said things that I really disagreed with. But I valued him. I honor him, and it's changed my life because of it. I wouldn't be the man that I am if it wasn't for Johnny. I wouldn't be the leader. I wouldn't be the preacher. I wouldn't be the pastor that I am if it wasn't for Johnny. And I, I could honestly go on. I have a few more that I could go, but I, I just wanted to make a point is that many people have looked at me. I've had people tell me for the last like 10, 12 years of my life, you're an anomaly. The way you preach, you're still so young. Still, I thought when I turned 30, people would stop saying it, but they're like, I can't believe you're just, you're like, you're only 33. I'm like, ah, still a kid, you know, but how do you speak this wisdom and this depth? You know, it's like, you're an anomaly. Like, you're a young genius. I've heard this message. I'm not trying to say I'm a genius. I'm just trying to say I've done things at a young age that I don't think would have made sense 50, 60 years ago, maybe. But there's no such thing as a self-made man in the kingdom. Like, we are all integrated and grafted and we're carrying in and we are the sum total of who we spend the most time with and who we talk to. And this is the deal. If we only are being influenced by people that are like us, we're living in an echo chamber. We can't do it. We can't. So I just, this is, this is how I want to close. I want to speak a couple things. I want to I give an exhortation first to the modern elders because the spirit of Elijah turns the hearts of the parents to the children. To the modern elders in the room, I want to exhort you to pursue the young geniuses. This is really simple, but it's powerful. Here's what I mean by that. Ask them to go to a meal, pay for it, and ask them questions about their life. And to the young geniuses, pursue your elders. Ask them to go to a meal, pay for it, and ask them questions about their life. <laughs> and again, I'm speaking to you. The way we build a culture of honor is by doing it ourselves. And I'm convinced it doesn't take all of us. It takes a critical mass. And then the tipping point will start to turn. God is building a culture of honor here, and it starts with us. Uh, we're going we're gonna to close, and I'm going to take communion. Uh, we're going to take communion. I believe that the Lord wants to heal hearts tonight by the power of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which destroyed the enmity. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, maybe... If, Jordan, could you come play piano? I think. If you could put that slide up there with enmity. It says that Jesus, through his broken body and shed blood, destroyed the dividing wall. If you were to contextualize that and, and pull out what he's meaning, he's talking about the dividing wall in the outer court of the tabernacle that was the dividing line where Gentile and Jew. So Gentiles could come into the outer courts, but they couldn't go past the dividing wall. So what scholars would say is that Paul was looking for the most blatant form of division that his mind could think of, and it was the division between Jew and Gentile. And he was saying that through Jesus' broken body and shed blood, he destroyed and removed the wall of division, making the two groups into one new man. Here's the thing, it might not be a wall in an outer tabernacle, but there's a wall in many of our hearts that is enmity, that's hostility, that's threatenedness, that's judgment. You know, Pastor Judge Justin preached a word on judgment that I feel like it just, it so goes with this. And I, again, I just have continued to be meditating upon that word. And I want to encourage us as a house to reckon, like there's judgment. When judgment gets in, it actually separates Right? And, and there are walls of division between Lonnie Frisbees and Chuck Smiths. And, and, and again, you know what I mean by that, between young geniuses and modern elders. But the point is, is that we all need each other. We need each other so desperately if we're going to fulfill our destiny in God. Because our destiny isn't our destiny, it's his destiny. And he does it through his body. And as we take communion tonight, I'm going to, it says in, in, I believe it's, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's giving his instruction on giving, on taking communion, he, he says that we should examine our hearts before the Lord. And so I'm going to, I'm just going to ask Jordan to play, and I'm actually going to, before we partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, which prophesies to the church that we are one, we're one. 
And the reality is if there's, if there's places where there's dishonor, disrespect, division, hostility, enmity, threatenedness, it means that the body's out of joint. It means that there's pain points in the body. It means it's not functioning. And it actually doesn't mean, it's not about just honoring your elders. It is about honoring your elders, but it's actually about honoring the headship of the church, which is Jesus. Like all authority comes from Jesus. And when we learn to honor one another, that's when, it, that's when the shift unlocks. To, to the parents, to the modern elders in the room, we can't treat the young generation like they're just young and they need to get in line. You can't, you can't it's, it's, we can't patronize because they're brilliant. There's a brilliance, there's a, there's, there, this is what's happening in the world. There are Lonnie Frisbees, there's anointing, there's grace, there's, there's so many young people that have entrepreneurial mindsets and perspective. There's millionaires, they're finding ways to make millions of dollars on social media. They're tapping into things that like we wouldn't have even been able to think of 20 years ago. And they're waiting to be validated and seen. But to, to the young geniuses, to the young generation, you can't do this alone. And you know a whole lot, but there's things you don't know. And your brilliance will get sidelined and taken out by brokenness, by pride. If we're not connected together, you need mothers and fathers in your life. We get broken in community, but we get healed in community. Some of us get hurt. Some of us don't know our fathers, don't know our mothers. Some of us had abusive relationships. Some of us had parents that were addicts. Some of us had brokenness. You're not gonna get healed by hanging out with a bunch of friends. You're going to get healed by moms and dads. But it's the Spirit of the Lord. This is God's will, church, that that the Spirit of Elijah would come and do a miracle and turn hearts and then destroy division. So we're going to take communion tonight. We're going to sit. I'm going to give like two minutes for you to examine your heart before the Lord. That if there are places where there may be judgment, There may be pride, there may be strife, there may be fear, hostility, anything that you could identify as enmity. And this is what I want to do is as we're sitting, I'm going to ask that the conviction of the Lord would come. And if you want to respond to conviction, I'm going to invite you to stand. And and, in that standing, it's saying, Lord, I am releasing enmity and I am opening my heart to that which I was once closed to. So I just want everyone to close close your eyes. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you are here in this place, that the spirit of Elijah is in this place. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body, your shed blood that was broken, ripped apart, God, and, and spilt out that we could be made whole that we could be redeemed, that we could be restored. Lord, we examine our hearts. We examine our hearts before you right now. And I ask God that you will bring a spirit of conviction and repentance into this room and that there will be a releasing of enmity now by the spirit of God. So weigh your heart before the Lord to give you a couple few minutes and invite you to stand at your own prompting if there's a releasing of enmity that needs to take place.
you, Jesus, that your conviction is clean, it's pure, it's healing. Lord, we, we thank you that the spirit of Elijah, the Holy Spirit, is in this room. And that as we take of the elements of your body and your blood, Lord, that you will release a love explosion into this house. Lord, that there will be a shift in the hearts of the parents, the fathers and the mothers, the sons and the daughters. Lord, and that you will turn us and you will make us one. Lord, I thank you that by your broken body, the torn body of your flesh, you destroyed the dividing wall. I want to invite you to take the wafer and break it in remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice and to take and eat of one bread, one body as a sign and a token of our union in the spirit of the Lord as the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that this blood spilt is the blood of the new covenant, which brings redemption to the brokenness of humanity. Lord, we take this blood and we drink it and ask that it will wash over the woundedness represented in this room and that it will heal and redeem what, what has been stolen by the enemy. I invite you to take this as the blood of the covenant and drink in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Lord, we ask you will bring a shift into every heart. And maybe if you would, just hold hands with the person next to you. Just say, Lord, bless this house. And empower us by your spirit, Lord, to become a culture of honor. Bless this house. Bless my brother. Bless my sister. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to do one more thing. Uh, Eric, you can come up here. We have a testimony of healing. You know, I believe the Lord heals hearts, He heals spirits, He heals minds, He also heals bodies. And when He heals bodies, it increases our faith of all the other things. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to let Eric share what happened to him at church last Sunday night. All right. So my back was healed. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's about it. But to give context, my back's been hurting for about eight to 10 years. Um, my parents own a construction company. We fabricate and sell countertops, and I installed for about 10 years, and over the course of these eight years, my back just hurt incredibly much. Um, high school and college age, I just sometimes would stop doing things because my back hurt so much. I'd have to lay down, and then I'd stop laying down because my friends would start asking how I'm doing, and I'd get annoyed, so I'd pretend everything was fine when... All I could think about was my back, and I wouldn't be able to fall asleep for a couple hours that night because my back hurt so much. Um, and I've had a journey and was exposed to the realization I didn't believe God would heal my back two years ago. And last week, I was not really paying attention when Jordan was talking about healing and everything and an invitation for it um, until Callie came on stage and was like, yeah, I saw her being healed. Oh, wait, why am I not standing? I should stand because... I want my back to be healed. Uh, so I stood up and I had people pray for me. Um, Riley in the back, I think a few of you know him. He uh, started praying for me and I kept standing there. And for the first five minutes, nothing really happened. And I was like, ah, it's just another time that it's not going to happen. And oh, well, um, but I had this inkling in my soul of, uh, no, I need to stay and I need to be prayed for. Um, and I just kept you know, they were interceding for me and all that. And all of a sudden, the knots in my shoulders started relieving a little bit. At first, I was like, maybe I'm willing this into, you know, uh, existence until it really felt like it just let go all of a sudden. Um, and that was such a strange experience. And like it went from my 
shoulders lower and just kept going lower until I hit my lower back where it hurt the most. And the way I would describe my back is like, if you were to clench your jaw and feel the side of your jaw, that's kind of how my back always felt. And it was crazy to me that I would like turn my back and it wouldn't hurt. Or like, even right now for Sunday, I was kneeling and I was kneeling and my back felt tired. Like it didn't hurt, it just felt tired. And I, it was, my mind was, just doesn't know how to comprehend it. Cause it's like pain should be there, but pain's no longer there. So th- this is this is what I, I just feel to do is one if you have back pain I want you to I want you to come up and I want you to come up to the forward if you need healing in your back, um, but two if you need a physical breakthrough in your body God is a healer and we're going to continue to believe and we're going to steward testimonies and we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer I know that there were other people that received healing as well and, and probably in maybe five or ten minutes after we pray I'm just going to open it if you have a testimony. We're going to create space. Wow, there's a lot of backs in this room. Praise be to God. He's a back healer. Uh, but th- this, is, this is what I want to do. If you need, a phys- if you need just a physical healing, um, I, I actually want you to, st- if you're back, I want you here. If, I want, you can stay at your seat if you just need a physical healing because this is what I want. If I want the young and the old to pray for each other tonight. And if you are a father, an elder, a mother in this house, I want you to find someone that's young, that's standing for healing. And if you are uh, young and in this house, I just like, we're just gonna let this, like in the, in the kingdom, John Wimber would say, in the kingdom, everybody gets to play. So we're just gonna let this be a place where the body actually lays hands on one another. And I actually believe that there's gonna be relationships that are gonna form tonight, even through prayer encounters. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna pray for the healing of backs. And uh, if if you are all of you here for back, oh my gosh, this is a sign from the Lord. Eric's gonna pray. This is amazing. Do you need, and, and anybody else? If you need healing in your body, I want you to just stand up in your seat, and and people can pray. But if anybody, if you're sitting and you feel prompted right now to come lay hands on anybody up here, I'm just gonna release you. If you're, if you, we'll just kind of let service release at this point, but we're going to pray, then we're going to create space for testimonies, and we're just learning to steward the move of the Spirit here, yeah? All right, Eric, I want you to just pray and release the kingdom of God over your brothers and your sisters. Lord, I thank you that you are a healer. Um, I thank you that you can heal so many of us and that we just praise you as your glory, Lord. It's your glory. I thank you that you just faced my unbelief and went, why don't you believe? And it caused me to just stumble and be able to change my mind, Lord. Lord, I pray for all those that just don't believe that they can be healed, Lord, that they just believe that they can be healed, that you just confront them in their unbelief and go, why my son, why my daughter, do you not believe that I can move through you, Lord? Come to us. We're powerless without you. Only in your will, Lord, your will be done. We praise you and we honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord, we just say your kingdom come and your will be done today in this house. We thank you for this testimony, Lord, and we say do it again for everyone standing here. God, we ask that the healing presence of Jesus will come touch these backs touch these bodies, Lord. We just speak a release of the kingdom of God, Lord, that redemption will break into now, that you will release tomorrow's bread today, Lord. And we reach in faith to the reality of tomorrow and say, break in kingdom of God and bring a shift in physical bodies tonight, just as you brought a shift into spiritual and emotional realms of honor, Lord. We just say, come, Lord Jesus, now. In your mighty name we pray, amen, amen. I want you to just test test your body, uh, all you back, all you back people. Test your body, maybe try to do something that you couldn't do before. And I just want you to look for the healing. Don't look for the pain, just look for the healing. We're not gonna do some emotional gymnastics. We just wanna actually look and did anybody receive breakthrough? Maybe try to bend over if you need to walk or anything like that. 
Did anybody receive breakthrough?